first reading this morning comes to us from the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. This section of Matthew is the Sermon on the Mount section. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you and to the church. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And our second reading, also from the New Testament, this time another gospel, Mark's gospel, the 13th chapter. This section, rarely preached on, is called in the, the world of biblical scholarship, the little apocalypse. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. When they bring you to the trial and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts together upon your word to us today be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, it is it's amazing, sometimes I pinch myself uh, that I live here in the New York, New Jersey metro area and get to experience and see the things that I do. Just over a week ago, my dad and I were driving back to New Jersey from Queens, where we had gone to watch my son Will's soccer game at St. John's University. And, my, and coming back, my GPS was about 10 p.m., took us from Queens, to not, not on the Grand Central, up over the Triborough and then across the GWB, this time, my GPS took us into Brooklyn and then across the Williamsburg Bridge. And as we crossed the bridge heading west, all of Manhattan was lit up. It was a beautiful night. There was the Freedom Tower, my favorite, the Chrysler Building, the Empire State Building, 
Wall Street on our left, Midtown on our right. And as we were crossing the bridge, I said to my dad in a slightly accusatory way, gee, I remember growing up in town so small that when we visited a town big enough to have a J.C. Penny, we were really excited. We would do shopping for six months at that Penny's. Well, that's the scene in our second reading this morning, the one from Mark's Gospel. Last week, we looked at a text just before this one where Jesus is strolling with his entourage, his disciples and other followers, around the temple grounds in Jerusalem. And we saw last Sunday how he watched as many wealthy people made a show out of putting large sums of money, which they could afford, into the temple treasury collection pots. And then how Jesus watched as a destitute widow quietly approached those same large collection pots for the temple treasury and put in two small coins, together worth not even a penny, but all that she had to live on. She, Jesus told his disciples, has given more than all the others. She has given the best of herself. Today tells us that Jesus and his followers there, his disciples and others, are now leaving the temple area. And as they go out that gate and walk across that little ditch, which is called the Kidron Valley, over to that little hill, which is called the Mount of Olives, just across from the Temple Mount, one of the disciples, and Mark, the author, doesn't tell us which one, looks back and then says to Jesus, whoa, Rabbi, take a look, Rabbi, my teacher, whoa, teacher, look at those massive stones and those massive buildings. I get it. This disciple is from out of town. He's a country fisherman from up north in Galilee where there is not, wasn't even a two-story building anywhere. He's a, an outsider. It reminds me of the first time I came to New York City 35 or so years ago. This time, coming the other direction, across the George Washington Bridge, I had never seen anything like it in my life. It was like for me going into Oz. And it was the 80s, so it was a tougher Oz than it is today. Fortunately, uh, my best friend's mother, whom I was mooching off of and living with them for a while in New York, gave me some good advice the first day I got there. She said, don't ever look up. They'll know you're from out of town. Here at the early part of the sermon, I want to uh, acknowledge that this reading from the 13th chapter of Mark is sort of a strange text to be using for a stewardship sermon, for a thanksgiving proclamation of the gospel. After all, this is the moment, this is the text which captures the moment that got Jesus into real trouble, which got him arrested, which got him executed. In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptic, all looking at things the same way. It wasn't that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Lots of people thought they were the Messiah. They could be dismissed pretty easily. And it wasn't because bigger and bigger crowds were following him everywhere he went. We know that crowds can be hard to control. We know, especially from just a few days ago in Houston, crowds can be dangerous. But crowds can also be pretty easily persuaded to change their minds and follow some other hero. No, Jesus' crime in the Gospels 
is what he says right here about the temple. Do you see these great buildings, he says to that disciple? Not one stone will be left here. All of it will be thrown down. And that, in the Jerusalem of the first century, is a terroristic threat. That's like bragging while taking a tour of the White House that you've got a gun in your backpack. That is like standing in the airport security line and making a loud joke about a bomb. You just don't do it. The temple was the center, the heartbeat of Jewish and Judaism's religious and social and cultural life. You just didn't threaten the temple, and that's what they got him on. The temple was more than massive and magnificent. It was too big to fail. The smallest stones in that Jerusalem temple of the first century, the smallest, weighed anywhere from six to 9,000 pounds. Many individual stones weighed more than 50 tons. The largest existing stone, part of the Wailing Wall or Western Wall, which is still there today, it's all that's left of the temple, that largest stone is 35 feet long, 10 feet high, and weighs hundreds of tons. Those stones were so immense that the builders didn't need to use mortar or any other kind of binding material. The stability was achieved by the great weight, just put pressing down one on the other. How they did it back then without cranes, without dynamite, without trucks, we'll never know. But it did take 10,000 workers 46 years to expand and complete this, which was known as the second temple, the first having been destroyed almost six centuries before by the Babylonians. Inside the four walls of the temple compound were lots of different buildings, most, most notably the temple itself with the Holy of Holies where God's presence was thought and believed to reside and where only the chief priest could enter only once a year. But there also were 45 acres of other buildings and courtyards used for worship, administration, finance, spaces for pilgrims, women, priests, animals waiting to be sacrificed, and yes, even Gentiles could go into parts of the temple compound. In one place, that temple's walls soared 400 feet, 400 feet above Jerusalem, and 250,000 people could easily fit inside the walls of the temple grounds. A quarter of a million, no sports structure in the United States or really anywhere, maybe a soccer stadium somewhere can come close. MetLife Stadium holds 83,000, about a third of what the temple could hold back in those days. So I think that country bumpkin fisherman disciple is right, massive and magnificent. He's like an Iowa tourist the first time in Times Square. Look at those buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all of that? All that stone, all that weight, all that permanence, it's all coming down. It is not going to last. Sounds crazy. Our stewardship theme for committing our money to support the ministry and the life of PCUM next year, as you've heard, is together beyond this pandemic. And this text from Mark today is a great word to us about investing in a future, betting on a future that is better than the one we're dealing with, the present we're dealing with right now. Maybe you feel stuck these days. 
facing some problem, some situation we can't get out of. Maybe we, as a church, a culture, a society, don't know how we're going to deal with these problems, these challenges that suddenly just keep coming and coming. We just discovered more flooding in the basement of the church the other day. We'll be hearing about that soon. But Jesus always points us, points us beyond the reality we think we can't escape, the reality that we think we have to accept, to a new reality that he is bringing to a better day. And because the reality that we're living through right now is so hard and so hurting, so, so uncertain, and because Christ is pointing us beyond this uncertain reality, Sarah and I are going to increase our pledge for 2022 even a little bit more than we normally would as we go into next year. Because we believe to get to that reality, to follow Jesus to that better day, which he will bring, we believe our PCM family has to pull together and step forward a little more than we might otherwise. We have to pull together beyond this pandemic. You and I have a choice in our personal lives, and as a church, we can sit back and let it happen. We can let this crazy time weaken us and destabilize us and diminish our capacity as a church to bear witness, as this church does in such amazing ways, to the amazing good news of God's love in Jesus Christ. Or, instead of sitting back and letting it all happen, we can do something about it, each of us together, and then all together, quite a bit. Because nothing is permanent. Nothing is forever, except for the steadfast love of God. Even this pandemic will end at some point, even the challenges you're dealing with right now, internal or external, they will end as well. In J.R.R. Tolkien's novel, The Hobbit, one of my favorites, it was a book before it was a movie, by the way, Bilbo Baggins has met Gollum for the first time, and Bilbo is lost in the cave of secrets and needs Gollum's help to get out of that cave. Gollum's going to show him the way out if Bilbo can defeat him in a game of riddles. And it comes down to the final riddle. Gollum gives it to Bilbo. This thing, Gollum says to Bilbo, all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stone to meal. Slays king, ruins town and beats high mountain down. Bilbo is stumped. He doesn't know the answer to this riddle. He's gotten all the other ones right. And after being pressured by Gollum, he just sort of gets, kind of starts freaking out, and he says, give me some time, give me time. And Gollum hears the word time and takes it for Bilbo's answer because that is the right answer. This thing, all things devours, birds, beasts, trees, flowers, gnaws, irons, bites, steel, grinds, hard stone to meal, slays, kings, ruins town, and beats high mountain down. Even massive temples, even pandemics, nothing is permanent, nothing is forever, nothing except that new reality which is as old as creation that Jesus points us to that hope and that love which God gives you and me and this world in Christ Jesus. One of my favorite present-day scholars is the British scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote a book called Surprised by Hope, 
Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, and the Mission of the Church. And Wright says this, Left to ourselves, we lapse into a kind of collusion with entropy, acquiescing in the general belief that things may be getting worse, but there's nothing much we can do about them. And we are wrong. Our task as a church in the present is to live as resurrection people in between Easter and the final day, with our Christian life, corporate and individual, in both worship and mission, as a sign of the first and the foretaste of the second. What we do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and teaching our children will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life itself a little less beastly, a little more bearable, and to tell, until the day when we can leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom now. It's hard to believe it's possible. We've got so much that seems so entrenched and permanent. We've got polarization in our society that is crippling and so very sad, and it seems like it's never going to end. We've got airline passengers attacking flight attendants. We've got people willing to drive their cars into protesters, people who just disagree with them or shoot them, people willing to put their lives in danger to keep faith with some political ideology. We've got rising temperatures. We've got COVID cases surging again now in Europe. We've got the burden, the heavy, heavy, almost unbearable burden and toll of all that uncertainty and all that tension and all that stress that we're all living with every day. And yet Jesus says here in this text, see, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, brother against brother, family against family, and this is only the beginning. It is hard to see beyond all that. It's like a 400 foot, 400 billion ton wall of stone and rocks. You can't move it, so why even try? I told you earlier as I read the text that this part of the 13th chapter of Mark is called the little apocalypse, sort of traditionally. But scholars are moving away from that interpretation. An apocalypse is about the end of the world as we know it and the ushering in of a whole new reality. That's not what's going on here in Mark. Mark isn't talking about the end of the world. Mark is talking about this world, this time. And all that we're facing, all that's bad, may seem permanent and fixed, like that massive stone temple that had always, always for those people been there. But like the temple, Jesus says, this is going to pass. And when it does, if you read these words carefully, when this pandemic, when this suffering, when this uncertainty passes, whatever it is that you're going through, when it passes, Jesus is saying to the church that we've got to be ready to bear witness to the gospel again next year and the year after that. He says, don't worry about what, you'll, what, you have to, what you're going to say or how you're going to do it. The Holy Spirit will be with you. We've got to be ready on the other side of all this to bear witness to the love and presence of God in Christ, which is God's deep desire for you and for me and for all creation. The late professor and author Elie Wiesel Holocaust survivor, was best known, among many other books, for his book, Night, a memoir of his and his family's suffering 
in Nazi con concentration camps during World War II. Eli was just 15 years old when his family was deported from Romania to Auschwitz in Poland. His mother, father, and younger sister were murdered in those camps. You would think that suffering that kind of tragedy would make him deeply pessimistic about his future. Instead, Elie Wiesel encouraged people to live with courage and hope into a tomorrow that when he was younger, he couldn't even see. He encouraged us to choose our attitude toward the future. And in one of his other books, he writes, one must wager on the future. To save the life of a single child, no effort is superfluous. To make a tired old man smile is to perform an essential task. To defeat injustice and misfortune, if only for one instant, for a single victim, is to invent a new reason to hope. That's what we're about. That's what we will be about in 2022. That's why you and I need to pull together beyond this pandemic in a special way this year, because nothing is permanent, nothing is forever, nothing except that new reality, that hope that God gives to us sacrificially in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to our gracious God that that's true. Amen.